Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. So today I want to talk a little about animal movement. Um, animal movement is actually an important um, sort of way of understanding how to deal with the physical world. And that's especially important for robotics. The robots of today are basically uh, constrained to factory floors. They're stuck and they're doing repetitive tasks. But the robots of the future are going to be soft. They're going to be things that maybe comb your hair and brush your teeth. Um, things like this uh, robot that uses a soft gel to pick up a fragile orange. Um, uh, this one is an octopus-inspired robot that reaches out and grabs you underwater. Um, this one is a rehabilitation robot that basically inflates and helps you learn to use your hand again once um, you've had stroke. All these are issues that involve soft parts, and those, those issues are totally different than the way we use robots today, which are mostly hard and rigid. Um, here's an example of what we can learn from animals. This kind of volume down a little bit. This is a Kelly, an elephant in Atlanta Zoo. Um, elephants eat about 190 kilograms per day of food. That boils down to 90 grams every minute. Um, two corns on a cob every single minute. And they do that by having ingenious ways to reach out and grab food. This is an example where she is actually able to use um, the entire length of the trunk. Roboticists are trying to figure out how to just not just use the tip of the adapter, but basically using the entire length to pick up larger items. And she's very effective. You can see she gets most of the items, and even if she leaves some behind, she makes sure to grab the last few remaining pieces. They don't just use friction to grab things. Elephants can also, if you listen very carefully, that's the sound of a Chinese noodle restaurant. <laughs> Elephants actually, when they're picking up small enough objects, they can actually use air suction, just like a vacuum cleaner, to generate the forces to lift these things up and uh, basically increase the frictional force they can grab objects with. So I didn't actually start with elephants. When I first started studying animal movement, um, I was this old. I was about five years old. Um, this is me. Um, my parents, uh, they were chemists. I grew up in Chicago. And um, I always followed animals around wherever I went. I was interested in what they did. And I didn't really have an idea this would be a career. But I just thought what they did was very interesting. And my parents always supported my curiosity. It wasn't until years later where I was mistakenly admitted to MIT um, and studied mechanical engineering, that I got the tools to basically start to understand animal movement. I stayed there and left eight years later with a PhD in mathematics. And that's me. I'm so happy that I uh, was able to leave MIT. My PhD thesis was on how insects walk on water. And it was on one of the first for the math department at the time. This is four seconds in the life of one of these insects. Does anyone know what the names of these insects are called? Yes, water skeeters, water striders, pond skaters. You probably see them on, on freshwater lakes and ponds. They're even in the open ocean. And this is four seconds in the life of a water strider under high-speed camera. You can see they don't just walk on water. They jump, they play. Here, this is an example of what my kids call parents having a discussion. <laughs> <laughs> you 
their entire bodies are water repellent. It's made possible by the fact that each of their legs is about the width of a human hair, but that leg is covered in 10,000 hairs per millimeter squared. It presents the hairiest surface in the animal kingdom. It's so hairy and so rough that the forces of surface tension, the forces on the water surface that keep it flat, prevent the water from touching the insect. So when the insect actually stands on water, 99% of that contact is air. It's basically walking on a cushion of air, and it doesn't get wet. And that's, the, that's why it can look so frictionless as it's moving like on a, on a sheet of ice on the water surface. Even those videos look um, elegant. Real-life research sometimes sometimes be quite messy. This is me in the lab back in graduate school. In our, this is the messy conditions that we took these pictures. And it's those conditions that also led to this picture. This is a photograph called Icarus. We call it Icarus it's, um, because we use a, a basically blue dye on the water surface, and we shine light from below. There's a large chunk of the dye that lands here. The dye is special. It's surface active, so it reduces surface tension, and it causes dye to be pulled outward and light to penetrate to the camera. When the insects get too close, the surface tension can actually break, and uh, they, cannot, they actually can fall through the surface. So that's why um, we call this photo Icarus. If it gets get too close, they can actually fall through. This photograph was one of the first to show these vortices, these small tornadoes in the wake of the insect. Um, how they generate it was a mystery. If you look at the legs of these insects, they're about the width of a human hair. And you imagine you're one of these water strutters. It's like trying to row a rowboat just with chopsticks, just two tiny little chopsticks. How are they going to move forward? Well, what we showed is they actually deform the water surface. They press down, and that generates small dimples. Those dimples of air actually push back more water. So they use the legs as oars and the... Um, the, the, the legs as oars and the dimples as blades. And that's able to generate these large-scale vortices in the wake, even though they don't have any blades themselves. When I started teaching at Georgia Tech, I was lucky enough that this was the cover of the textbook that all mechanical engineers are using to study fluid mechanics. You might think that this insect is, um, is not very useful for us. I don't, we're not that small. We're, we're much heavier. What can we do if we want to walk on water? Does anyone know what this animal is? Yes, Bass's lizard. Somebody's been to Brazil. It's also called the Jesus Christ lizard. It's able to run across water. It stays stable because the water surface is very slippery by moving its arms up and down. And every time it hits the surface, it strikes it so hard it generates like a belly flop. That drag force on his leg is sufficient to support its weight, and it does this over and over to resist penetrating as it goes across. This is what it looks like in real time. Another trick they have is that they, when they hit the water surface, they generate an air cavity. When you see Olympic divers diving into the water, they'll generate a small cavity of air that will collapse. And they can pull their legs so quickly from the water surface that as they push their legs down, before the cavity collapses, they can pull it up before the top of their feet get wet. So the secret for them to walk on water is to hit the surface as fast as they can and pull it out before their feet get wet. They're literally walking on small potholes on the water surface. So the book is called How to Walk on Water and Climb Up Walls. And I thought you should at least know at the end of this lecture how to walk on water. So I'll give you two techniques. You could be like the water strider, and that you're supported by surface tension. 
But the problem is, is we weigh much more than an insect. And so for us to support ourselves with the surface tension, the sort of elastic film on the water surface, you need legs that are about 10 kilometers in diameter. Okay, that's not even gonna, that's not even gonna uh, fit in the, um, uh, around the island around here, right? The other option here is to use your inertia for slapping the water surface. Then you only need legs that are about a meter squared. That's about the size of kitchen garbage cans, about this big. And that seems more reasonable. But the problem is, is that we can move our legs much faster through uh, air than through water. If we want to move our legs through water at that same speed, water weighs a thousand times as much air, so you'll need about 15 times as much power to do so. So we cannot run on water like the basilisk unless we have um, exoskeletons can increase our muscular force. And that's something our lab is working on right now. So as a mechanical engineer, one of the things we do is we build devices based on what we see. And this is one of the first ones we built. Um, it's called Robo Strider. It's a, it's a small robot about the size of my hand, but it weighs one third of a gram. So it actually is supported by the surface tension, by the elastic film on the water surface. And when it rows, it has basically hydrophobic legs made out of aluminum. It deforms the water surface. So it's like a dry rowboat. It actually doesn't penetrate the water, but it just deforms the surface and pushes on the small dimples that it generates, the wave patterns that you see. There have been 20 versions of this built that have solar panels um, using electrolysis to fuel themselves, and they're envisioned to basically use as cheap sensors to be spread across the ocean. So during my PhD thesis, I started realizing that studying animal movement requires technology. And this is one of the first examples of that. Does anyone know who this is on the top left? Um, he wear, he's wearing clothes kind of like a dancer, um, but he's a photographer. Yes, yes, I heard it from both sides. Edward Wybridge. He was a photographer and he had a friend named Leland Stanford who in uh, early um, 1900s, uh, Leland Stanford had a bet. They were trying to understand, he was, he was a horse betting man, so he made bets on horses all the time. And he and his friend couldn't decide when a horse galloped, when they're running at their highest speed, if they actually lifted their legs off the, the ground. Was there a phase where they're actually completely in the air, or do they always have one foot on the ground? And you know, they didn't have computers or high-speed cameras back then, so no one knew what the answer was. So Mybridge decided to do an experiment. He uh, fit strings across the path that the horse is going to run, and each string was attached to a single camera. When the horse ran, each of these strings triggered a series of photos that you see here that clearly resolved this controversy. For example, on this top image, you can see that the horse is indeed leaping into the air during the gallop. But as Mybridge looked through the films, he flipped through the images, he also noticed that as he flipped through the image in high speed, the horse looked like it was moving. This became the invention of cinematography. So Mybridge, in trying to understand how horses move, invented all of film. The first film was horses, the second film was on a train that was coming towards the audience, so realistic the audience actually jumped out of the way. And now we have Ant-Man. So you can see how basically studying animal motion can lead to sort of um, new, new un unintended things. Another tool that, so we don't just have um, uh, high-speed photography these days. We have tools like 3D printing. And so this next story, I want to tell you how we use 3D printing to study cats. Raise your hand if you have uh, cats. 
We're close to Persia. Does anyone have a Persian cat? I, oh, you have a Persian cat? Okay, I have, a, I have a question for you later. How often do you groom your Persian cat? Every month? But you, have, you do have to comb it pretty regularly, right? Otherwise, it gets matted. So cats are one of 36 species all across the world, um, from your average house cat all the way up to your tiger. And one thing they have in common is they all groom. They are basically awake for about eight hours of the day, and about one-fourth of that time, they're grooming themselves. Um, uh, all the way from this large tiger here to this, this house cat. This is a very, he's kind of holding, a, holding back his um, pain. He's being licked by um, a cheetah. Looks very painful. And if any of you have been licked by a cat, what does it feel like? Yes, it feels rough. Very different if you are licked by your friend or loved one. That feels very smooth. So why does the cat feel so rough? Uh, you can try this at home. <laughs> the cat feels rough because of th these structures. Um, let's see. Uh, let's try this again. So this is a high-speed image of the cat licking. It takes about a single second, and it does this every second for a couple hours at a time. And you can see the cat's tongue is not smooth. It's covered in small spikes. Here's another view of it. And the muscle of the tongue is very special. It's like the cardiac muscle, so it can expand in all directions. You can see that is basically an example of the, the muscle pulsing, and these individual spikes can come out, and they can interact with the hairs on the animal. So the great thing about working with biology is that we don't have to just work with one cat. We can work with all the cats in the world. Um, Atlanta is close to this place called Tiger Haven. Um, uh, that's a place in Tennessee where if you're an American, if you've illegally adopted a cat, at some point you realize that you have to feed the cat 15 pounds of meat a day, and then you adopt it to Tiger Haven, where there's basically hundreds of big cats um, being taken care of. And when the cats die, we actually get their tongues. Um, not before they die, don't worry. So this, this is an American quarter. That's a cat, a bobcat, a cougar, snow leopard, a tiger, and a lion to scale. So as you expect, the lion is three times bigger than the cat in every dimension, and so is its tongue. Its tongue is very big. But the structures on its tongue are actually the exact same. They have 290 of these individual spines on the tongue, and they're basically the same shape from the tiger all to the cat. So if your cat has a big ego problem, you can, tell, you can tell it, you can say it's because it has lion spikes of the same size as lion. And this is what they have. This is made possible by 3D scanning and 3D printing. You actually pull out each of these spines, and it's got two uh, structures that you notice. One, it's round on the base to keep it embedded, just like a tooth. And the top is a narrow tube. Some of you might call it a capillary tube. It's very similar to those coffee stirs that, that spontaneously wick up water. And when I first saw this, I first thought of these small coffee stirs, and they have this amazing property that water will spontaneously go up them. So just like a paper towel, if you put a paper towel in water, water will rise against gravity up into the tube. And that's because of surface tension. It's trying to minimize this area of contact with the tube, and so it's able to just um, travel upward. The same thing happens with the cat tongue. This is one of those spikes from the cat that is uh, played at real time. And you can see it acts like a lock and key for saliva. Um, as the cat puts its tongue in the mouth, the saliva goes into each of these 290 spines. And 
you can take the cat, put it upside down, shake it around, and this, the saliva will stay in the spine. It's very, very rigidly attached. Up until the spine meets the appropriate key. And for cats, that key is its own hair. This is a single one of the cat hairs being pulled to the spine. You see it was very rigidly attached. But as you pull the spine through, it's able to um, release the saliva. Saliva is a, like a, basically a natural detergent. It is able to dissolve any oil and blood. And um, you can see it's embedded very deeply into the fur. When there's 290 of these spines, they can go far deeper than if the cats had a smooth tongue. If with a smooth tongue, you would only put saliva all on the surface, but deep into the underfur, an inch down, uh, that's where these spines uh, are at play. They're so important for the cat that the cats have completely be become dependent on them, and not just for cleaning. Um, this is a very soothing video of a cat licking itself with thermal imagery. It's so soothing that if I play this, we're just going to... If I play this too long, we're just all going to fall asleep because it's so, so soothing. The white shows high um, temperature where heat is being released from the body. And that blue spot is the cold, wet cat nose that wakes you up in the morning. So you can see, as you expect, as the cat opens its fur, heat starts to escape, and you can see it turn bright. But if you wait over a few minutes of time, um, the area turns dark, and that's due to the process of evaporation. So the cat is actually using this process to cool itself, and it's, it's, it deposits about 48 grams of saliva all over its body during a given day. And it depends on this process so much that the cat has lost its ability to sweat. It only sweats through its paws and through uh, using a breath on its tongue. So if it were not for basically this cat saliva put, it on, put on its body, the cat would actually overheat on a regular basis. So these are the fluid mechanical properties of the, of the spines. But um, as an engineer, we also think about how the spines work physically. And um, I have a six-year-old daughter. And one of the things we do um, in my family is we, we comb our, my, our daughter's hair. And uh, one thing I've noticed, if you go to stores, comb design has not changed for about 10,000 years. It's all basically vertical spikes and uh, rigid uh, rigid backbone. It's quite, quite different from the way the cat tongue is designed. The top is a UV light on the actual cat tongue, and the bottom is a silicone substrate where we've 3D printed each of these spikes. Any, is there any kids in the audience who know what 3D printing is? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, there's basically 3D printing in elementary schools these days. It's basically the next screwdriver. Um, and we're able to use that to basically mimic uh, the cat, uh, the cat um, tongue. So when you brush this through your hair, you'll notice a few things. One is the forces are much lower. And that's because each of these spines, is, instead of being vertical, is facing forward. So it has a lower contact area with the hairs. Um, the other thing you'll notice is that what we found by accident. This is a typical hairbrush. And um, I don't know about in, on Atlanta in Friday nights when I'm bored, we'll just sit there and we'll clean our hairbrushes, um, you know, with a tub of ice cream in front of the TV. Uh, Oh, that's weird. Let's try this again. And the problem is if you clean your hairbrushes, it's very, very difficult to clean. Because the spines are rigid, and so is the base, you have to pull out each one of these hairs individually. There's no fast process to clean this. So if a cat had this on its tongue, it would be disastrous. It would be basically like a single-use tongue. You just basically use it for a few weeks, and then you have to throw the cat away. 
But this is what nature has designed. Instead, because the spines in their relaxed state are all pointed towards one direction, the cat can just simply, it has these little bumps on the top of its mouth. And you have them too. If you rub the top of your mouth, you'll feel these bumps called rugulae. If it rubs these bumps over and over, it creates this convenient hair, hair clump that can be vomited into your sandals at 3 a.m. in the morning. So it's very easy. The cat can get rid of the hairball anytime at once. So this is patent-pending technology. So maybe in a few years, uh, you'll be able to comb your daughter's hair with a cat-inspired hairbrush. So I saw a lot of people in the audience um, had uh, cats, but does anyone have a, raise your hand if you have a dog? Dogs are popular in Abu Dhabi too. So I want to talk a little bit about dogs. And um, the first dog I met was my wife's ex-boyfriend's Valentine's gift to her. Um, when we were dating, I had to basically kiss up to this dog. And uh, one of the things I noticed that was the way they shake. It's very, very, it's really amazing. We've measured it. We've actually put a dog on a, on a balance. It has a 60-pound dog will have one pound of water in its fur. And it can lose 90% of that water in a single second. Um, this is about three seconds of what's called the wet dog shake. And it's very difficult. If I'll go into my office, I'll get on all fours, and I'll try to do this shake. You have to sort of start turning your head, and they can basically start to get their back into it, and then they can get, if they're really, really good, they can get their tail, and they get this whipping motion to get rid of all that water. It's, it takes a single second to remove 90% of the water, and that's, you know, that's much better than our laundry machines. Our drying machines take a couple, at most 40 minutes to remove water to a comparable level. Oh, it, it, he said, Pond says it's okay. <laughs> um, do you think it's going to go away? Okay. Okay, okay. So we're all going to live, um, at least to hear the end of this talk. Okay, so when animals invented fur, they had to invent a way to remove the water. And uh, the, hardest, the animals that have the hardest time doing this are not the dogs. They shake about four times per second. But the hardest ones are actually the smallest animals. Imagine if you've got a merry-go-round, um, and you basically, if you go in the center of the merry-go-round, the forces are very low. So you have to go at a much higher frequency in order to remove the water drops. So this mouse shakes at about 30 times per second. Um, it can get 10 shakes in a single eye blink of your eyes. Um, this rat, it's a little bit bigger than the mouse, uh, shakes about almost 20 times per second. And you see it as a special technique of closing its eyes. And that's because if you actually calculate the amount of acceleration when an animal shakes off water, it's about 20 times Earth's gravity. And uh, the, the person who tested the human limits of acceleration was this guy named Colonel John Stapp. He strapped himself to a rocket sled, and he went on full speed and slammed on the brakes at the last minute. And he found at about 15 times Earth's gravity, your eyeballs start detaching from your retinas. And so every time animals want to get dry, they're actually pushing their own limits, and they got to make sure they closely shut their eyes so their eyeballs don't, don't pop out. Because it takes that much force to remove the water at this speed. Um, here's one of the larger animals shaking. Um, this one, the bigger you are, the less hard you have to shake. So this one shakes about four times, four times a second. Um, you're shaking, shaking so hard that it doesn't even have to keep its eyes shut because it's just still able to look at you while it's shaking. Those eyelids are just so heavy. 
So one of the experiments we did in our lab is, is tracking. So we want to track what the fur does during the shake. And this is an experiment you can do at home. You can just take a pink straw and you tape it to the very back of the dog. So that is actually the very back of your dog. Um, it goes back and forth about 30 degrees. So from 12 o'clock to 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock, it does that every single, about four times per second. And that's very different from what the backbone does. This is an x-ray of a rat um, doing that same shake. Um, I really want to set this to music. I think this could be a good MTV video. But the backbone, you see, doesn't move very much at all. It moves at most um, from 1 o'clock to 11 o'clock. So what the dog's doing, it has loose skin. What that is able to do is increases the amplitude of the shake by a factor of three. That increases the velocity by a factor of three and the force by a factor of nine. So just by having sort of loose skin, these animals can really increase the force that used to repel water drops. These actions are so fast that animals can't actually control them consciously. They rely on what's called the central pattern generator. Central pattern generators are networks of neurons that are in your spine, and they're responsible for all of locomotion. For example, the reason you can talk and walk at the same time is because your brain's not controlling your legs. It's all controlled by these neural networks, series of neurons in the spine that basically send out blinking signals. and They basically send out signals back and forth, and the emergent basically, interaction between them generates basically the leg motion, or in this case, the sinusoidal gait. And this is the first robot that is controlled by a central pattern generator. These scientists dissected salamanders and lamprey and figured out what each of those neural codes were that sent this signal and recreated it in this machine. So this robot doesn't actually have a brain, doesn't have a CPU. It's controlled completely by its spine. And it's very robust. If the animal bumps into a wall, it'll keep on going. Um, it's because if something's interrupted, the central pattern generators can re, re, basically re-emerge the kind of motion patterns. Um, here is an example of it going from land to water. Just without even thinking about it, it feels the forces are different. And by feeling forces are different, it automatically changes gait. From a walking gait to basically the swimming gait. And people have done the same thing in animals. If you actually do animals with, uh, do experiments with the geese, um, if you just increase the stimulus to their spinal cord, they'll go from a walk to a run and then to a flapping, to a flapping flight without any um, thought. It's all from generation from the spinal cord. This one's still okay too? Oh, okay. We're stuck here for a little while. Um, so, the next animal I want to talk about is um, these fire ants. Are there fire ants in Abu Dhabi? They're all over the world. Um, when I'm on the radio in Korea and China and Japan, it's because fire ants are escaping from Brazil and going um, sort of everywhere around the equator. They're, all, they're basically in the bottom 25 of the United States, and there's no known solution. And one of the reasons that they're so fearsome is because they build structures like this. They can actually, they're called, this is called the fire ant raft. It's made possible by the fact that these ants have very sticky glue. So we actually flash froze, we took one of those fire ant rafts and flash froze it like coffee. And we CT scanned it with an x-ray. And we saw these are the individual positions on the body that the ants are actually gripping each other. So they act like Velcro. And each of the feet, the feet has a structure like this. 
There's basically a very small balloon that exudes a composite of different fluids, like a glue. If you watch ants crawl on glass, they'll leave very small drops, just like this, this picture here. It's very strong. One ant can support maybe 100 times its weight just from these small drops of glue. Um, and it allows them to build structures like this. So you might have a question of how do you actually work with fire ants? And the problem is fire ants are stuck in the soil. So what you do, you've got to go and dig the soil with the ants and put them both in a bucket. Then you simulate rain. Drop by drop, you put drops into the bucket and overnight, the ants have enough time to crawl out of the tunnels and link together on the water surface to build those structures. So that is, the soil's on the bottom. That's completely composed of fire ants linking themselves together to build this kind of waterproof fabric. This is the water surface. And that's what happens when you try to drown the fire ants. They're so elastic and, uh, and they're tightly, so tightly bound that that's all air pockets. So that shiny surface is all air. It means the ants inside are completely dry. It's basically a, a, a similar to Gore-Tex. They're generating such a rough surface area, just like the leg of the water strider, that this is able actually to repel water even up to a couple inches in depth. And they're also called fire ants because if you touch one, it feels like you got burned with fire because they're fiery sting. So, um, so don't try this at home unless you have gloves. So the Army Research Office in the U.S. is actually funding my work, and they're interested because the fire ants represent a new kind of material. They're 20% solid and 80% air, so you can actually squish them down, and the ants are fine. And that's because they have elastic energy stored in their muscles. They can withstand and store the energy that you apply to them, just like springs. This is a video of a penny falling through a raft of ants. The ants are able to make and break their connections. Just like a self-healing material, they can go in front of the penny, they can feel the forces due to the weight, and they can separate. In the wake of the penny, they recombine. So if you just come back later, the penny has gone right through the raft without damaging any of the ants. And again, it's possible because they have these connections that can be easily made or broken. These are completely mechanical connections. If you have dead ants, you don't get structures like this, where you pull two ant rafts apart, and you basically get long strings of the individual ant legs that are linking together. We've done modeling to show that this structure is made possible because of the fact that ants, if they have fewer and fewer neighbors, they hold on with increasing force. And that allows them to sort of grip onto each other um, even when this thing is falling apart. So, Atlanta and Abu Dhabi have one thing in common. We don't get snow. Um, but we do like to play these games called ant snowball fights. We'll take these ants and pull it, make it into a ball. And if you take this ball and put it on the water surface, you can actually get these structures um, that are always two ants tall. So, even if this ant ball is 30 ants tall, in the end, you basically get um, what I like to call the undergraduates on the bottom, and then you get the professors on top <laughs> um, that are basically standing on top and not getting wet. And in, so we've measured each of these ants, we've measured a, a constitutive law. Each of these ants feels the forces on top, and they have two states, a fluid state where they expand and a solid state where this basically this thing, they stop breaking their, with their neighbors. And that's necessary for the ants to build useful structures. For them to build things that last, they need to build structures that eventually don't uh, separate. 
And that's true for these structures. This is um, an ant raft reaching out to land. Um, it's like a pseudopod, basically one of these amoeba. And this is one of the robotic mimics of the ants, uh, where investigators at UPenn have built individual robot boats that have small propellers and small grippers that if you have a lot of them together, you can get a truck to go across um, this, this raft. So that's one of the um, many robots in the book. Um, I'll tell you about one more robot. Um, this is the Cornell Need Walker. Um, it's based on the idea that human walking is very, very efficient. In fact, there used to be a, a controversy that said we couldn't improve the efficiency of walking, that we couldn't reduce the energy it took to walk. And that's because if you walk an entire kilometer, it takes about only two tablespoons of sugar of energy to do so. And the reason for that is, is that basically the legs store energy in basically inertia and gravity as they're swung back and forth like a pendulum. And it allows this, for example, this robot here to walk down a slope of just one degree without having any brain um, and just simply by storing energy in its legs as it goes back and forth. There's some energy losses, and the robot compensates by having very small springs in the, in the back of this robot. That's similar to our Achilles tendon. Um, and scientists have found that that is one of the big causes of energy losses when we're walking. Um, they've built a device that composed of only maybe a 10-gram spring uh, that you wear in the back of your leg. Um, and that reduces the forces that are lost when the muscles hold onto the tendon. Um, they found if you wear one of these devices, it can actually extend your walking by 10%. So you can walk 11 kilometers rather than 10 kilometers just by wearing one of these special braces. So in the book, um, I also talk about research that is sometimes just for fun. Um, and this is what Pont was mentioning that I won the, it's called the Ig Nobel. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Ig Nobel Prize. The Ig Nobel Prize, it's a prize given at Harvard um, every year for 25 years. Uh, and it's for research that makes you laugh and then think. And um, I won this prize for, for recognizing that animals urinate for pretty similar amounts of time. In fact, it's a constant time, about 21 seconds on average. And uh, I noticed this when I was changing my son's diaper. And uh, my son's only 10 pounds. Um, he's 10 times, weighs 10 times less than me. And um, when he urinated on me, I noticed that it took a really long time, much longer than I expected. Um, and when I did my own experiments later, I found that I took about the same amount of time, about 21 seconds. And I was shocked because I weigh 10 times as much. He has a 10 times smaller bladder. How can we have the same amount of time? So the very next day, I went to my undergraduate class in fluid mechanics, and I asked for any volunteers <laughs> to go to the Atlanta Zoo to measure the urination time and volume of all the animals they could find. Because, you know, nature is my library. I go and we go and we can measure these things. And um, they first thought this was a big joke, but I told them I'll give them an A in the class if they do this experiment. And so they go away and they come back in a couple weeks and they're completely like dusty and covered in urine and they smell terrible. They say rhino urine is like the very, very worst of all. And I, I asked them one question, I said, how long did the elephant take? Well, they told me this story. And this is the evolution of the urinary system, first time ever at Abu Dhabi. So rats do not satisfy the law of urination. Um, they urinate, their force is so low that actually surface tension tries to push it back into the body. So baby rats cannot actually urinate. Their mothers actually need to lick 
their openings in order to get them to release fluids. For them, it's the very hardest because of the forces of surface tension. This goat looks probably more like what you did before you came to the lecture this afternoon. Very similar, you have a long jet and then extends the Rayleigh plateau instability due to the basically undulations of the surface. This is urine escaping through a thin sheath and you basically get what looks like a flat fluid fish bones effect. It's about a bucket of urine. And this is my favorite video of all time because it's my student's PhD thesis, part one and part two, all in the same video. We published two papers on this. I was super happy. Um, let's pause this video right there. So I was, asking this, I, was, I was asking what their data looks like, and they said it looks really boring. We don't, you, you shouldn't look at the data. But I said, just tell me what the elephant did. And they said, to measure this, they had to go up in the early morning when the elephant wakes up, because that's the only time it'll really urinate. And they take a kitchen garbage can. You know, the American garbage cans are like 20 liters, like this tall and this wide. And they push it underneath the elephant, and then they wait. The elephant wakes up, and it fills the entire garbage can. It's about 20 liters. It's 100 times as big as your dog's bladder, which is about the size of a cup. And it does it in about 21 seconds. I said, this is the biggest discovery of my career. We have to understand this. And so to do that, you can actually build these systems where you have containers of different sizes. And underneath, you have a pee-pee pipe, a urethra of the appropriate width and length of animals, about 20 to 1 ratio. And if you have that, you can get arbitrary sized containers to empty in the same amount of time. And as I know some of you might be talking about this at home. My students use this as a pickup line at bars. But men and women both have pee pee pipes. Um, the women's pee pipe is just inside the body. So both of them are using this to urinate. And the pee pee pipe does a couple of things. And I'll use the elephant pee pee pipe to explain. That, the female elephant has a pee pee pipe about um, the, length, the width of my fist and about a meter tall. So imagine it's like a highway. You have all these urine molecules trying to go down. The wider the highway, the more they can pass simultaneously. But the taller the highway, it uses a special effect called Bernoulli's law. It was invented by this guy who invented manometers. And he showed that if you've got a long pipe underneath a vessel, it can artificially increase the speed by basically increasing the force of gravity. So the elephant's urine is actually coming out at the rate of five shower heads. You would get really, really clean from five shower heads. Um, five urine shower heads, probably you would get less clean. But um, it's because of this long pee, pee pipe that these elephants can actually release their bladder so quickly. And um, when we did this work, um, we were on a Japanese game show called Gaten. And uh, a urologist was so shocked that he actually had to do the study this himself. And he interviewed 2,000 Japanese people about their urination times. And he found that as you increase in age, urination follows a nice trend. From 20 years old, about 21 seconds, till you're about 80, it's about 30 seconds. And it's because the bladder, the muscle in the walls, starts uh, having lower, lower forces. It becomes weaker. So he's thinking that one day, if you want to measure the strength of somebody's bladder, you don't have to use lasers or expensive equipment. Your doctor might just ask you, how long does you urinate today? So this is um, my eighth uh, book, book talk. The book has robots. The book has animals. Um, it's, been on, it's on Amazon Kindle. Um, it's been read on Audible for about six hours by an Italian-American actor. It's been translated to Korean and uh, Chinese. And um, uh, I'll be signing books in the hallway. Uh, thanks so much for being a great audience. Thank you.
You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.